going wrong that God's got something to say. Right? Amen. Hope. Oh, excellent. Uh, so, screens like giving us a, to- a real hard time. Um, there was also stuff for us today. Lindsay had to fill in last minute on a shift, and it meant that we got here like just one of those days. But praise God, He's with us, isn't He? And um, I'm excited to be back in our series, Heart and House. And um, we are looking at 2 Samuel 10 and 11 today. So, if you've got a Bible with you, please do turn there and we'll, we'll read a part of chapter 10 in a moment and then follow that on uh, with the whole of chapter 11. All right, do you guys remember the Red Row Flats? Any of you remember the Red Row Flats? I grew up in Lindsay, so I remember them because every time you drove down the M80, they dominated the skyline as you're going into Glasgow in the northeast of Glasgow. Um, they took years in planning and months and months in building, but they came down in less than four seconds on the 10th of June, 2012. A controlled demolition, an implosion. And uh, it took place because they had placed explosives strategically so that it would come down in four seconds and um, implode on itself. But if uh, we had a demolition that was unplanned in our own lives, and there were explosives that we didn't know about, we would certainly want someone to reveal them to us. We'd certainly want someone to point them out for us so that we didn't have some dramatic fall, some explosive thing happen in our lives that meant that suddenly life was in tatters. And the type of self-implosion we're going to see in David's life this afternoon is all too common. And none of us, none of us should think that it isn't possible that something like this could happen to us. If David, a man after God's own heart, who seems to have so much integrity most of the time could end up in this kind of scenario, then every one of us sitting here could too. So we're going to focus on chapter 11 today, but chapter 10 is this kind of vital contrast that we see in the lead up uh, to what happens, and also just the context of what happens. It's part of the story as to why David ends up the way he does, and having this monumental and explosive fall. So let me read from chapter 10. I'm just going to read the first couple of verses and uh, introduce what we're then going to bring through chapter 11. It it says this, Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head, and I'm in one Samuel. I'm like, that is not what it says. It's definitely not right. I'm like, I think I studied the wrong bit. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show show kindness to Hanan's son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out 
and overthrow it. So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. So David, in these opening verses, is actually behaving with some extraordinary godly integrity. And we've seen from him through his life up to this point all kinds of displays of the love of God in his own life. Radical displays of kindness of what is called hesed love in the Old Testament and uh, is interpreted kindness here at the beginning of chapter 10 when he shows kindness to his enemies, the Ammonites. But hesed is way more than just kindness and kind of what we might understand. Kindness, I love this, I quoted this the other week. This is how uh, this word kindness, hesed, is explained in my daughter's Bible story, uh, storybook. Never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Jesus Storybook Bible, quick plug, excellent, even if you're 42. This time to King Hanan of the Ammonites, he's showing kindness to an enemy. And then we saw previously to that in chapter 9 that he showed kindness to the house of Saul when no one around him would have expected him to, but he kept his promises to Jonathan and to Saul by blessing a, a, a man who really had been rejected in society and shunned. And this great king swoons in and invites him to his table and makes him like a, a royal resident. So here he is again, showing Hesed love. It's extraordinary, not just to his own people, but to the nations. Unfortunately, as we see, King Hanan's advisors are suspicious and counsel the new king to go out and seize David's men. So David sends out a rescue party after those verses I read. And little did they know that the Ammonites bought the help of mercenaries, hired soldiers from another nation, the Arameans, a Syrian tribe, which is, I think, fascinating because of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. That's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually Assad's uh, Syrian soldiers who are being hired uh, by Putin at the moment to come into Ukraine, one of the groups that they've hired. I mean, it n- means nothing for this text. I just think it's quite fascinating at the time of it. Um, the Ammonites then uh, go to war with their hired soldiers, and amazingly, the Israelites pull off a shock victory. They were surrounded on both sides, and managed to still get the victory. But they were determined, the Ammonites. Even when they lost their hired soldiers, they kept fighting and they kept fighting and they kept fighting and they kept going. They were not willing to to give up. And so the war rumbles on. David had gone out to defeat them and had led the party in that decisive battle, a third battle. But it didn't take long before David decided he wouldn't keep going to battle. He wouldn't keep fighting. He wouldn't keep going to the front lines. King David's Hesed loved, uh, love looked so like the king to come, so like Jesus. But here in these verses, he very much stops looking like Jesus. And actually, he starts looking a bit 
more like us. That's the truth. Still chosen by God, still blessed by God, but now we're about to see a side of David, nothing like what we need as a true and lasting savior king. The Bible doesn't cover anything up here. And I love this about the Bible. The Bible isn't pretending at anything. The Bible is real about real people's lives. David's life is actually summed up in 1 Kings 15 with the inclusion of this moment. His whole life summed up by the chronicler. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that the Lord had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. So as we turn to chapter 11 and read all about that, I want you to bear in mind this whole context in the background, this war that's been going on. He has been kind, but then it seems that in that year, there are some things that go on in his life that stop him being like the king that God had called him out to be. And instead, he gets inward. He gets selfish. And he starts to become nothing like the king that we would expect him to be. It didn't happen in a moment. The whole instant was prepared in his heart in advance over time. And that needs to be the real warning to us here. Are there things going on in our hearts, things that could cause explosions, not just for us, but for the people around us that we're allowing to sit there, waiting for that moment where it all explodes. The 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle said, men fall in private long before they fall in public. There's lots of things we can focus on here to help us become more aware of these explosive issues that we might have in our lives. I'm going to focus on three, and um, we'll work through those, and I hope they are a help to all of us. First one is this. David fails to live up to his responsibilities. The second one is that he forgets where strength comes from. And the third one is that he's been forging ahead without dealing with his sin. I'll then ask a question at the end of each of these three. And what I think would be amazing, okay? If you really wanna apply this sermon, really wanna apply this text, if we go away with those questions, you might wanna take a little picture with your phone of the questions or whatever, note them down in your notebook, and find someone who knows and loves Jesus and loves you too, and is willing to work through these questions with you, okay? All right, let me read from chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Take note of that. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me to Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent him to David. 
When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had, Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jer Jerub, Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to the house, his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Okay, internal explosive in David. Number one, he fails to make his responsibilities, uh, take his responsibilities seriously. So it's spring in verse one. And that is the time for battle. That is the time that men go out to fight when there is a war on. It's like the men who are of fighting age in Ukraine at the moment. And many have tried to sneak back over the border um, and, and have been sent back. Well, David is, is kind of trying to do something like that. He's trying to get out of it. He doesn't want to fight. The writer uh, is very deliberate when he says, kings go off to war. 
In other words, as uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, it is a time for war. But David remained in Jerusalem, says the text. One evening, David gets up from bed. Now, it's okay to have a nap from time to time. But again, why does the, why does the writer include it? Sometimes we need to just pay attention to the details in these texts. And it ties together with what really is, in verse 2, pacing. He's walking around on the palace roof. In Hebrew, the commentators, commentators say that it infers an activity for your own interests. He's walking around thinking about himself. You might say he's bored. Boredom comes when we act like children. My five-year-old comes to me and tells me that she's bored, even though she's got tons of toys she could play with. She's got so much things that she could do. But you expect that from children. You don't expect that from adults who are taking their responsibilities seriously. I want entertained. So St. Jerome said, Engage in some occupation so that the devil may always find you busy. They reckon that's where the proverb, the devil makes light work of idle thumbs comes from. How things have changed. David had led this great victory over the Ammonites just a year before. He's charging out in front of all Israel's army. And here he is leading now from his equivalent of a hot tub. What a contrast to people like Vladimir Zelensky, refusing to leave Kiev when it's under bombardment. Even more so to Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He's a remarkable man. Out of this dreadful situation comes a blessing. Because children are always a blessing. Bathsheba is pregnant. Psalm 127. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Offspring, a reward from him. No matter how hard the situation, children are always a blessing in the eyes of God. David, though, is still only thinking of himself. Here is an opportunity to take responsibility for a child. Like he'd already done with the kids that he has with his many wives, he's failing to be the dad that he should be. He's trying to fob off his child to somebody else. He's desperate to make the baby look like it's Uriah's. He's trying to get Uriah to go and have sex with his wife so that Uriah thinks, oh, this baby must be mine. Brings him back from battle. But Uriah is a great man. He's got integrity. He might be a Hittite, which is a foreigner, but he's someone who has committed himself to Yahweh, to God, and who has total integrity in this whole situation. In verse 11, he sees that it doesn't work. David can't get him to go home to his wife. Why? Because the ark... And the Israelites and the Judeans are all out in battle, sleeping out in tents. 
And so he says, I can't go home and make love to my wife. I can't go home and drink and be merry when they're all out there. I have far too much integrity for that. I'm going to sleep with the servants in the servants' courtyard. I'm not going to go home until I've gone and taken on my responsibilities at the front. And isn't it interesting that the first mention that he makes for why he doesn't want to go home is the ark. A man who is not even an Israelite by blood will remain true to his responsibilities before God and God's nation first. So here he is, King David decides, I'm going to get him drunk. I'll get him into the palace, get him wasted, then I'll send him to his wife. It doesn't work. He's got too much integrity. Still won't go. And so he sends him off to the front with his own death warrant in hand. And he hands his death warrant. Again, think of it. He's not opened it. And yet he hands over his death warrant to Joab, the commander of the army. And Joab does exactly what David asked him to do. They go to battle and then they leave him on his own to be murdered, killed. This faithful man dies because King David is trying to cover up his own sin, won't take on responsibility for himself or anyone else. Now, some of us can be very critical of leaders, can't we? It can be easy to make criticisms and sit in our armchairs or be keyboard warriors and get stuck into people online. Think of Bojo, who decided to take a wee holiday in Somerset in the hours before Kabul fell and international leaders were under huge amounts of pressure to not just get their own nationals out of, uh, of Afghanistan, but to do something about what was going on. And it didn't help, of course, that Dominic Rabb at the very same time decided, oh yeah, I'm going to go to Crete. He was our foreign secretary at the time. You think, man, guys, what are you doing? Now, it's easy to be critical of guys like that. But let's be real. Are we taking responsibility for ourselves? Never mind other people. Let's not be like David in this situation. Let's actually look to be like Uriah, the Hittite. And ultimately, Jesus. In this moment, David looks more like us. But Uriah looks more like Jesus. He's willing to go to the fight. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Praise God for Jesus, who no one could find any fault in. Set out resolutely for Jerusalem a thousand years later and went to the front lines of the world's ultimate battle. Defeated sin and death and Satan on the cross, willing to die in our place. True king who executed every responsibility of his with perfection. Implosions take place after explosives are placed internally. So here's what I want us to do. That was number one. Take a moment now to think, what are the responsibilities that God has given me? And ask, am I really taking them seriously? 
Am I really being careful to do all that I have been asked to do? If you are failing to take your God-given responsibilities seriously, you could be drifting towards an explosive fall. Okay, number two. Second, in our explosive uh, explosion that is um, inner explosive, that's what I mean, David forgets where his strength comes from. The author writes chapter 11 with focus on David's perspective. That's why there's a double mention in the opening verses that David is on the roof. A king in power on the roof surveying his kingdom. All the while, there is no mention of God. There is no mention of God at all in this chapter until the final verse. And what's it about? The condemnation of David's actions. David has forgotten where his strength comes from. No longer it's a psalmist saying, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. As he does in Psalm 28, 7. Here is a man in power losing perspective. We've all seen that before. He's forgetting all that God spoke through the prophet Nathan in chapter 7. This key moment where he spells out this covenant that he's made with King David and ultimately with Jesus, about Jesus and then with us, it says this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And he goes on to, to say, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. David hasn't established this and he's forgotten it. This is given by God. And he's got amnesia. Success, position, power, they tend to do that to you. They're all given by God. And David seems to have forgotten. I love the boldness that you later see from Daniel to the most mighty man in the whole of the world at the time, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your majesty and, uh, your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of, of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. <laughs> you didn't deserve this. It was given to you. You didn't earn it. God gives it. Are you a leader? Do you have responsibility for others, either at home or the workplace or in church? Have you in some way been given power? When you forget that it's from God, you place an explosive inside you, ready to take you and many others with you. Suddenly, man empowers glance becomes a gaze. 
Soon the self-indulgent commands start to come. Find out about her, verse 3. Go get her, verse 4. He then sleeps with her, verse 4. Doesn't say they lay together, he slept with her. His initiation. Doesn't find out about her to see, maybe, maybe you're thinking, maybe he just wants to know if she's single. No. It seems like he wants to find out if her husband's away or not. He sends multiple royal messengers to go and get her. This is not a saucy affair where two people fall in love, which would be awful. This is even worse than that. It's, an, it's a terrible abuse of power. Adultery is terrible. This is worse. Even the word bathing here has been abused by people like me who get up here and think, this is my biblical hero. I can't say things that are too bad. But it actually holds no suggestion that she was naked or in any way seductive. Simply washing. Most likely with a washcloth. Don't say anything about clothes coming off or anything like that. Truth is, we don't know if, Beth, if Bathsheba consented to sex or not. But the text would lead to conclude that more than likely she didn't. Bathsheba's following purity laws while David is despicably defiling them. Bathsheba is the innocent party here. God puts blame squarely on David, not on Bathsheba through this text. October 15th, 2017, Hollywood actress Alyssa Milano posted a tweet in response to this growing awareness of sexual abuse that was going on in the, initially in the movie industry, but obviously it spread. If you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write me too as a reply to this tweet. Within a year, it was used 19 million times. If Bathsheba had Twitter, I hope she would have found the courage to say me too about her experience with David. No matter what you think of the noise around the Me Too movement, because all of these things have nuance to them, we should be rejoicing that sin is being brought into the light and being dealt with. We should be rejoicing and helping to make sure that these things don't continue. We need to encourage others to get abuses of power out of darkness into light, out of stuffy boardrooms, staff rooms, parties, even in, especially in the church. Yes, we've got to call this stuff out, but it, but it actually starts by us getting real with our own sin and having that come out into the open in an appropriate way. Now, sadly, David <clears throat> continued to use his power to cover up this whole thing. All the way to murdering Uriah. 
But in one way, all of us have power today, like David did, to act on sexual impulses. At the end of our arm is a mobile phone. And most of our mobile phones can quickly access porn by typing a command into the phone. Or you can arrange to hook up on Tinder or whatever your app that you use might be to go and have sex with someone. Technology is God-given, isn't it? But, like anything, it's a form of power that can be used for good or bad. Like the power David experienced as king, it can be used to act for self-indulgence, sinfulness, or it can be used for good. And we need to fight to use it for good. Sometimes I feel like the church is catching up on stuff that should be blindingly obvious to us. There's another technological advancement. Great. But with it, let's use it to the glory of God. Choose Hesed love towards others, not self-indulgence that will have an effect on your relationships and add misery of those who are looking to escape the reality of their own difficulties through sexual encounters or getting caught up in the porn industry. Instead of letting your glance turn to a gaze, gaze fully on the Hesed love of God. Remember your strength comes from God alone and use it to his glory. Okay, so the question here is this. What strength has God given to you? What power do you hold? And what could you do to be reminded that they are from him and for him? What could you do to be reminded that they are from him and for him? Implosions take place after explosives are placed internally. Last one, internal explosive number three. David's been forging ahead without dealing with an ongoing sinful issue. Blind spots by nature are hard to see. No matter how big they are. Catherine Rollins found an interesting item as a 15-year-old in her, near her Warwickshire home. And she decided to use it as a vase. Grabbed her flowers, stuck them in, took it off to uni, had it her whole life, loves it. Recently, uh, she was watching a documentary and she realized that she had an old bomb as a vase. So she phones the police, says, what do I do? They send some bomb disposal experts from the MOD and they come over and tell her, it's an active World War I bomb. She's had a bomb sitting in her living room for years, decades, and she's not realized it. Pouring water in, dropping it off the mantelpiece. It's crazy. David's, David's sin was huge, explosive. But although it's potentially quite difficult for us to understand this, his sin was something that was culturally 
normal for leaders and kings in those times. He had an issue with polygamy. He had multiple wives. And he'd had multiple wives for a long time. The law of Moses, though, gives him no excuse. That'd been taught by Samuel throughout David's life, and now Nathan increasingly teaching from the law. It's quoted throughout 1 and 2 Samuel very clearly. And in Genesis 2, it's obvious that it's a creation design for there to be one man and one woman in a marriage monogamy. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And it's not until Lamech, third generation after Adam, that we see that anyone has more than one wife. God's design was clearly monogamy. Deuteronomy, there's all kinds of teaching on monogamy. One man and one woman. Marriage, as we know it in the church, including the seventh of the ten commandments. You shall not commit adultery. It's pretty plain, isn't it? But here's the one that should have just caused David to be struck with fear in his heart. Deuteronomy 17, 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And that's what happens. When Jesus taught in this, he said, we should become one flesh and that what God God has joined together, no one should separate. He was joining, Jesus was joining with the creation design for sexual relationships that is consistent to the Old Testament. Jesus said that even in our secret places and thoughts, we should run from sexual immorality. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. David's view and treatment of women had not been good for a long time. This is nothing new. And it was ready for an explosive implosion. We need to do all we can to keep turning to the grace of God and the love of God, this Hesed love for us. And say, I want to be all about that all about his love for me and I want to love him in return. I want to love him first and I want to love those around me with all I've got. And we need to help one another to do that. That is essentially what we are doing as a church. We're helping one another to do that. And so again, let me encourage you, if you do not have this in your life right now, grab someone who loves Jesus and who loves you and who understands the grace of God, this Hesed love, who you can tell about your sin, who you can open up to, and you can pray together that the Lord would defeat these things in your life so that the explosives would be removed and no longer would you be a threat to yourself or to others around you, but a blessing. that you would be someone who increasingly shares the love of God with others. Implosions take place after explosives are placed internally. Have you, here's the question, 
Have you been allowing a blind spot to remain? Now, you may not know the answer to that. That is why we need strong accountability in our lives. We talk about gathering the larger group, and we talk about gathering in a group of around 12 grace communities, and then we say, go and grab people, one or two others, and go really deep with them. Make sure that you get people in your life who can say, I've noticed this or that, what's going on there? You speak the truth in love. And I know that's not always easy to do. I know it's not always easy to identify. So if you're struggling with that, go and speak to a Grace Community leader who might be able to help you with that. Or come and speak to me or to Johnny. We'd love to help you. We're here to help you. David's dramatic and explosive fall was coming. The, the explosives have been placed over time. It didn't happen in a moment. And we have to ask our, ourselves what internal explosives are there in our lives. And we need to do all we can to remove them. But, but as I wrap this up, let me just mention what Matthew Edmonds is gonna be preaching next week. Because if we don't talk about that, we've missed it. If you just went away today thinking, oh man, I've got all these things and I'm gonna blow up, then we've totally missed the point. Okay? I want you to leave today with the most remarkable part of this story. Unlike the harsh law of our culture, when our leaders make that mistake that crosses the line, their career is gone, their life is over, that's it, no chance of redemption. What happens to David? Sure, there's still consequences for his ministry, his life, his leadership. But with God, there was forgiveness and redemption. Are you feeling condemned? Don't feel condemned. Feel convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then turn to Jesus and see that he's taken all of your sin and your shame away. He's removed it as far as the east is from the west. Remember that glorious verse in Romans, for there is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. You are a new creation, that you have been made pure and holy. You're a saint. Turn to him. You've got an ongoing struggle. Wrestle, but wrestle in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, because the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. You are not left in the gutter. If you've been hearing something this afternoon that's been saying, yeah, I told you, told you, yeah, you're in trouble, told you, you're gonna blow up, yeah. No, in Jesus' name, no. Because Jesus is alive. He died on the cross for you. And when he, was, when he rose to new life, he gave that to you, made himself one with you. And so we are not overcome by sin. We have victory over it. What we must never do is treat anyone with no chance of redemption gospel, the gospel always leaves opportunity to repent and be restored. Okay, we're going to take communion together and we're going to be reminded 
of his love and grace for us. So I know there's some heavy stuff in there, okay? And we need to deal with that. I want you to deal with that before you come to this table, not that one, this table. And at this table, when you take the bread and you take the wine, remember that this body given for you was freely given for you because of his great love for you. And this blood spilled for you was spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. It's gone. So repent. Get on your knees, repent, and then come to the table. You need to speak to someone in the room, make up, do what you need to do. There's something between us. I love you. Hug it out. Because Jesus loves us both and we live by his love. Great, then come to the table. If you don't know Jesus yet, just observe. Just see what's going on. Just wait.